You're listening to episode 78, Fertile Minds Radio, and I'm your host, Hillary Talbot Rowland. Sort of maybe being a little bit behind the times, that's unfortunately quite standard, not only across the U.S., but across the world. And it really is, as, as you alluded to, it's almost cruel in a way to say you just had a loss. We have a test that's available to tell us with certainty what was the cause of it, but we're not going to do that test until you have two more losses. And I don't know any other area in medicine where we do something like that. Someone has chest pain, we say, well, it's probably a heart attack. We could do a blood test to find out, but we'll wait to see if this progresses. You know, we just don't do that. And it's really unfortunate. And even if you make the argument, which I think is a fair argument to make, for a woman who has one pregnancy loss, let's say 80% chance is due to chromosomal abnormality. Well, if you do that test, then in 80% of the cases, you'd be able to give her a sense of closure. She would know it wasn't the, all those other lifestyle factors or things that happened that could have caused that she will be erroneously blaming herself for. And in those 20% where it was not chromosomally abnormal, then you could start to find the cause before waiting for her to have two or three more losses. If you're looking for holistic wisdom and a plan to reclaim your fertility to help you create a healthy family for generations to come, you're in the right place. This is Fertile Minds Radio. That excerpt was from an interview I did with Dr. Zev Williams that we have decided to refurbish in honor of National Recurrent Pregnancy Loss. To date, it's one of my favorites, and I hope that you will enjoy because it is jam-packed with information. Whether you have experienced loss or you're just starting out, you owe it to yourself to have a listen. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to educate our listeners about IVF options and the work that you do around recurrent pregnancy loss. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you, Hilary. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Congratulations on your appointment to Columbia University last year. I'm sure they're very excited to have you in your Pearl program. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm very excited to be at Columbia. It's an amazing, amazing place. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit uh, what Pearl is, what's unique about it? Sure. So Pearl stands for the Program for Early and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss. And it's one of the only centers in the world that is specifically focused on helping women and couples who are suffering from recurrent miscarriages. And what's special about it, in addition to be clinically focused on helping those women and couples, is that we also have an entire research component that is dedicated towards trying to understand what causes a lot of the cases of unexplained miscarriages and trying to develop new methods to prevent them in the future. That's awesome. And you have a a big education piece like through the research that you're doing too, right? Yeah. So the research... And education really go hand in hand. Anytime we start gaining new knowledge and new insights, it's imperative not just to keep it local and and just to help your own patients, which is obviously important, but to spread that information to other physicians around the world and also to patients as well. I think knowledge is really empowering and helpful. Yeah, I I agree completely. That's why I take this time to do this show for sure. (laughs) Uh, You know, Dr. Google can answer many questions incorrectly, so... The more experts like yourself I can get on here, I think the better off everyone will be. No, thank you. And, and Hillary, it really is such a great service that you're doing by, by sharing this kind of information so broadly. Oh, thanks. You know, it's it's just part of my passion. It was one of those things I couldn't I, I couldn't ignore that voice in my head that's been about four, <laughs> four years. It's finally here. Wow. That's <laughs> uh, wonderful. Yeah. 
So I feel like being a reproductive endocrinologist is hard enough, you know, not that long ago, success rates were, you know, still somewhat low 20 to 30%, although that is, you know, optimum fertility rates when we're younger. And while they've changed quite a bit in the last few years, thanks to some of these major advancements we've had, and, you know, in some clinics are experiencing, you know, 60 to 80% success, you've chosen to work with a patient population that has some much bigger odds to overcome. So I'm just really curious, how did you decide to to focus on treating this patient population with recurrent pregnancy loss? That's a good question, Hillary. And, and you're absolutely right. If you look at the advances that we've made in terms of treating couples with infertility, so the inability to even get pregnant, it's really one of the great success stories of modern medicine. We've taken cases where you had an under 1% success rate, and now for the vast majority of cases in fertility, we have tremendous success rates. And that's gotten really great and it's been tremendously gratifying and really heartwarming to see how we can help so many of these couples have success and have children. What's sort of been left behind in some ways, though, is those who are able to conceive very easily, often on their own. So they're able to get pregnant, but keep having pregnancy losses and miscarriages. And that's been really, in many ways, a black box in the fertility world. And there have been so many questions that have been left unanswered in terms of why these losses are happening. And as someone who was sort of training through this process, it was heartbreaking to see all these couples who just kept going through one loss after another, not having any answers, not having a direction where, where they could go. And in many cases, not having a place that they could go for treatment that's really focused on helping that type of a situation. Um, and so it was very clear that this is a, an area where there's a, a great need for research to help understand why the losses ha are happening and a great opportunity to try and discover these new causes so we can help these couples have success in the future. That's awesome. I mean, you're definitely not um, scared of a challenge because I know for myself, you know, sitting and holding space with a woman actively going through a miscarriage, that's it's not a part of anybody's day that you want to have to do, but it's a necessary part of the job when you deal with infertility. Right. It, it's incredibly heartbreaking when it happens. The flip side to it, though, is that when you can find out what was causing these losses and correct it and then see these couples going on to have you know, one healthy pregnancy after another, sometimes without even needing such dramatic interventions, it's just sort of identifying what the problem was. I mean, that's such a great, great feeling. I'm sure. And it's so wonderful to be a part of that. Yes. And you know, part of your work when you're talking about the research and the education piece, one of the great things that I saw that you were doing is you were going back and surveying your patients and you, you had this particular survey of 1,084 men and women that was published in Obstetrics and Gynecology and it showed just how misinformed men and women are about the likelihood and cause of a miscarriage. And for me, that really helped to drive home what I see in the clinic because I think oftentimes women don't know how common it is because it's not talked about. Uh, you know, it's just kind of pushed under the rug. It's like the funeral never happened. And they are constantly cataloging everything that they've done for the last few weeks that, in thinking that they are the cause of this miscarriage. And your work really kind of drove that home. Were you surprised at your findings at all? Yeah, I, I think you, you highlighted a few points sort of in your experience with the patients that, you know, was something that I saw as well. Um, and then I wanted to see, was it just something that I was encountering with my patients or is this more a global thing? And it really is, as you pointed out, a very global phenomenon. We have this really tragic conspiracy where on the one hand, patients think that what they're going through is rare. They tend to blame themselves for it. 
And there's sort of this taboo about even discussing it. So these factors all conspire together to make those going through pregnancy loss feel incredibly isolated, alone, and often racked with self-blame and guilt. And the survey really bore that out, that across the U.S., across all income levels, races, educational backgrounds, this is really a very pervasive finding. And what was fascinating was after this paper got published, friends and colleagues and patients of mine from around the world were sending articles from their countries sort of talking about the exact same phenomenon, but sort of putting in the context of the local environment. So, for example, in India, there was a whole story about it. And one of the doctors there was saying, yes, everyone thinks they went on a rickshaw and that's what caused the loss to happen. So you, you have the same concept of people looking back, as you said, at sort of the weeks leading up to the loss and often attributing something that they did wrong to being the cause, where what we do know from the medical side of it is that's almost never the case. Right. I mean, so often, I think I've read varying stats from 60 to 75% of those first and second trimester miscarriages are aneuploidy, which if you're listening and you're not sure what that term is, it's extra, not enough chromosomes. In reality, I mean, I kind of almost wonder if it's closer to 75 because there's so many women that don't have a medically documented pregnancy, you know, whether they didn't get into the OBGYN until eight weeks or it was a chemical pregnancy. It was only a few days, but they were certain they were pregnant. Do you find this in your work at all? Like that it's kind of closer to that? Hillary, I completely agree. And in fact, one of the realities about human reproduction is that it's a very inefficient process. So if you look at what happens to an egg once it gets ovulated. Of those eggs that get fertilized, very, very few will ever result in a live birth. And as you pointed out, the vast majority of those fertilized eggs will fail to progress before the woman even knows she's pregnant. And we know from IVF and testing embryos that there's a very, very high rate of chromosomal abnormalities in those embryos. And the body has sort of put in place mechanisms to protect the woman and to say, you know, it's not healthy to have a very severely genetically abnormal pregnancy progress. So it's safer for the mother to stop the pregnancy early and allow her to have a chance the following month to conceive with what will hopefully be a genetically normal pregnancy. Yeah. And that's, that's hard because, you know, I describe that as the tragedy of human biology to my patients and nature's checks and balances to make sure we didn't overrun the planet more so than we already have years ago. But that's not really something you want to hear when you're miscarrying, right? No, the tragedy of human biology, that's a, that's a very poignant way of putting it. And it's completely accurate. And it's not something you want to hear. Although I have to say, I think for many, as you pointed out, because people so often will blame themselves and will say, you know, it was that ski trip that I went on or lifting that heavy box or getting an argument or having a deadline at work, that often being able to see that the loss was due to something very severely chromosomally abnormal that occurred literally at the time of fertilization or even before when the egg was being produced or the sperm was being produced, sometimes that does provide a sense of closure and alleviate a lot of that self-blame. I agree. And it's it's unfortunate in my geographical location where I am in Florida, I feel like we're sometimes kind of behind the times in a lot of things. Um, but many times I'll notice that an, a woman's miscarriage won't be tested until it's like maybe the third time that she's miscarried to try and find out the cause. 
Um, it's just kind of passed off as, well, it's chromosomal more than likely. And that's not really enough closure, I feel like, especially if it's happened more than once for a woman. And it, it's kind of damaging to her psyche to try and even conceive again. And I read somewhere that you disagreed with this practice and that you've actually come up with a handheld DNA sequencer that can determine if aneuploidy is the cause rather quickly after a miscarriage. Can you tell us more about this work and if it's available? <laughs> Yeah, no. So first of all, what you were sort of saying, Florida may be being a little bit behind the times. That's unfortunately quite standard, not only across the U.S., but across the world. And it really is, as you alluded to, it's almost cruel in a way to say you just had a loss. We have a test that's available to tell us with certainty what was the cause of it. But we're not going to do that test until you have two more losses. I don't know any other area in medicine where we do something like that. Someone has chest pain. We say, well, it's probably a heart attack. We could do a blood test to find out, but we'll wait to see if this progresses. You know, we just don't do that. And it's really unfortunate. And even if you make the argument, which I think is a fair argument to make, for a woman who has one pregnancy loss, let's say 80% chance is due to chromosomal abnormality. Well, if you do that test, then in 80% of the cases, you'd be able to give her a sense of closure. She would know it wasn't all those other lifestyle factors or things that happened that could have caused that she will be erroneously blaming herself for. And in those 20% where it was not chromosomally abnormal, then you could start to find the cause before waiting for her to have two or three more losses. Part of the problem has been that the testing, you know, you sort of see that how the history of medicine impacts the present. So traditionally, the way you would test miscarriage samples was a very laborious process. The way you would test miscarriage samples to see if there was, as you put it correctly, aneuploidy or having the wrong number of chromosomes present in the miscarriage tissue itself, the traditional way that testing would be done was laborious. It would take about three weeks and could cost several thousand dollars to do. We now have technologies, though. Molecular biology has advanced a lot in the past 30 years since that technique was available. And we can now do that kind of testing for a couple of hundred dollars, less than just a regular blood test. Yet, we've sort of stayed with the old model in terms of doing the testing. And we haven't advanced and said we can offer patients this sense of closure or an earlier time to start to investigate. So we've been working on a number of different technology platforms that are available in other areas and are applying them or sort of redoing the chemistries in them to allow us to do that kind of testing on miscarriage samples um, so that we could do that kind of testing much earlier. And there's sort of two big areas that we've gone on. One is something that we've published on called rescue karyotyping, where we're able to get samples that are were produced in the past and could have had genetic testing done on them, but we're not. And we're able now to go back sometimes seven, 10 years, get those samples and do genetic testing. Uh, in cases where that's important for our clinical evaluation workup or where people have really been racked with guilt over the loss. So that's one area. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, so, and that's been really, I mean, I've literally had women in tears sitting across from me because they had the loss. They were sure it was this thing that they did that caused it. They wished genetic testing had been done, but they were told, oh, no, this was just your second loss or your first loss, so we're not going to do the test. And they were told that, no, since the test wasn't done at the time, you can't do it anymore. So now we are actually able to go back and do that kind of testing. Um, And since that paper has been published, there's a number of sites all around the country where you can send the sample for testing. The other thing, though, that we're doing is so that in real time when women have the loss, we're sort of working on different approaches to allow this testing to be done at a much lower cost. And we're trying to partner with commercial places so that they can offer it 
really is a service to these women. So they're not told, oh, you need to get this. You can't have this test because it's so expensive, but there are faster and easier ways to do that. That's awesome. I'm going to make sure that I link this part of our conversation to that karyotyping study so that if a woman is listening to this and she really wants that test, she can actually just present that study to the patient with your, to her OBGYN with your name and say, Hey, I heard this test is available. Look, here's the sign. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. And for full disclosure, you know, I, we published that paper. We made it publicly available. They, I don't have any sort of conflicts on this. This is really for, to try and help as many people as possible get that kind of closure information that they need. Awesome. I, n- I noticed that with a lot of your work, you know, it's quite telling because just looking at the body of your work, you're, you're looking at everything. I mean, you've got studies on preeclampsia. You really seem interested in that take home baby of a healthy, happy baby, not just getting pregnant. And I think that that is really telling of your intention behind your work, which is awesome. Well, thank you. I was hoping that you could maybe go into some of the differences between PGD and PGS testing for our audience, because I feel like sometimes these terms are mistakenly used for one another uh, in my patient population, and they're really kind of different. They do very different things. Can you explain a little bit about that? And The nomenclature is very confusing and constantly evolving, but I'll define those two terms that you used, which really unfortunately sound remarkably similar to each other. So the two terms that you correctly alluded to are PGD, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, D, and PGS, which is pre-implantation genetic screening. The way those two terms have been conventionally used and historically used refers to a process done where a couple would go through, or a woman would go through IVF, would have a number of embryos made and being grown in the lab. Those embryos would be grown now to day five. And then a couple of cells from the outside of that embryo, what's called the trophectoderm, the part of the embryo that would eventually become the placenta, a couple of those cells are taken off from the embryo and sent for testing. And the rest of the embryo is frozen pending the results from the test. When those embryos get sent for testing, there's two types of testing that can be done. In the case of PGD, that's pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, there's a specific disease that one is looking for. So, for example, if you have a couple that are carriers for cystic fibrosis and they don't want to have a child who has cystic fibrosis, what they could do is test those embryos specifically for cystic fibrosis. And let's say you have 10 embryos, you'll get a report back saying embryos number one, two, and three are completely healthy and normal. Numbers four and five and six are carriers for the cystic fibrosis mutation, the specific mutation that causes the disease. And the last embryos, if they were transferred, would be affected and the child would have cystic fibrosis. And then the couple can pick only those embryos that would not result in an affected baby and child. That's pre-implantation diagnosis. Pre-implantation genetic screening, PGS, is when you look for what you had mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, something called aneuploidy or having the wrong number of chromosomes. So in this case, there's not a specific disease that you're looking for like cystic fibrosis. You just want to make sure that the number of chromosomes in the embryo is correct. And as you also mentioned, the vast majority of pregnancy loss, especially in couples who have one or two losses, is because of having this wrong number of chromosomes. So this allows you to test the embryos and only put in an embryo that doesn't have the wrong number of chromosomes. So something like Down syndrome is a classic example of that, where you would have the wrong number of chromosomes. This would allow you to test the embryos before they're put into the woman, and only an embryo that's 
healthy and doesn't have the wrong number of chromosomes would be put back in. The additional embryos would stay frozen and the couple can use them in the future for additional children. That's awesome. And is it, am I correct in my understanding that you actually need more than two for PGS testing? You have to have multiple ones to compare or is that outdated? No. So thankfully you don't. Um, You can test one embryo. Ah, okay. And is this something that you recommend a lot in your practice? Do you recommend both of them or just case by case? No. So it's definitely on a case by case basis. So a couple important points. For those who are carriers of very severe diseases, and we're seeing more and more cases of that, PGD is incredible. It's really transformative. And you, you have someone who's had You know, I mentioned cystic fibrosis, but there's a list of literally hundreds of these really tough diseases that we can now, that either a couple's had an affected child and then it turns out that they're both carriers for, or they get screened before they're even pregnant to see if they're both carriers for some of these really severe, tragic conditions. And then they could avoid having to go through that and can ensure that they have a healthy pregnancy. So that's the diagnosis for specific diseases. That's incredible. And it's really transformative in many ways. So traditionally, the way that's been done is there's a lot of genetic diseases that aren't well known. Will you can There's a number of companies that you can send a blood sample to. They'll screen the partners and say, okay, most people are carriers for some diseases. It's really only an issue of both parents are carriers for the same disease. They'll come back and give you a report, and then you can find out whether PGD would be necessary or not. More recently, what we've done, though, is you know we have cases of, of women who have really difficult pregnancy losses, recurrent pregnancy losses, children born with very severe abnormalities, but the traditional testing is normal. So in those cases, we will actually do sequencing of their DNA and often discover new mutations that aren't previously well reported, aren't part of these screening tests. Um, And then we can go and help them with their future pregnancies to ensure that they don't have a repeat of this outcome. So that's really, that's sort of the, the leading edge of where things are going now, discovering the causes for a lot of the losses or babies born with severe anomalies when they might never have been reported before, and then helping those couples. So specifically developing what are probes to help make sure that those embryos are healthy that get put back in the future. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. Um, and it's, you know, that what's so gratifying about this is you take couples who really thought there was no hope and that they were just taking a chance with every future pregnancy that they could have a repeat of what happened before and being able to in some of these cases, ensure that that doesn't happen. PGS is more controversial where you're just screening for chromosomal abnormalities. In those cases, you're not fixing anything, and that's important. It's just a screening test for the embryo. So in a couple or in a woman who has many pregnancy losses that are chromosomally normal, PGS would not have helped. That same embryo would have been put back in. On the other hand, if you have someone who keeps having pregnancy losses due to chromosomal abnormalities, PGS could be helpful. And even in cases of someone who knows that the same baseline risk as anyone else, and they might have been normal in the past, for many, they've said, you know, their position is, look, I've, I've had eight losses before, 10 losses. We have some women who've had 20 losses before. And I realized that they were chromosomally normal, and we might have found what we think was a cause of them, and we've corrected it. But they still don't want to have the baseline risk there. They've been through so many that if they can do something to try and minimize that risk, they would. So that's one circumstance where it may be helpful as well. Thank you so much for explaining that so clearly. So are you, when you said there's companies you can send those off to, are you referring to like a 23andMe that would take your genome and tell you, and then you're expanding upon that in some cases? So those are companies. It's not 23andMe looks for some, but there's others 
that will do. And these you can go, you know, through your OBGYN to do uh, carrier screening. That's what it's called. You'll get carrier screening. There's a number of companies that offer them. Um, and they can screen not just for a couple of diseases, but typically over 200 different diseases they'll screen both parties for. Awesome. And to make sure that they're both not carriers for anything. So since you are definitely a genius when it comes to epigenetics and the study of DNA and RNA sequencing, I, I have to ask you what your take is on MTHFR gene mutation uh, and its you know potential role in recurrent pregnancy loss. Because I feel like I'm not sure if it, is so prevalent of a cause or if it's getting blamed or if it is really something that should be taken seriously and we should be so dogmatic about giving blood thinners before and what you think about that. So first of all, thank you for the the kind compliment, but I would say more accurately, I'm fortunate to get to work with a a team of a lot of really smart people and really dedicated people. So it's, it's really just the whole group that's working together with, with a singular focus more than any one person. In terms of the MTHFR, that's a really hot-button topic. And what's interesting about it is you had probably about 10 to 15 years ago a lot of people getting very excited about this mutation. Why? Because they found a lot of women who had recurrent pregnancy loss had this mutation. But what appears to be the case is you have this overlap of two fairly common conditions. One is having the MTHFR mutation, and the other is pregnancy loss. And the question was not whether a lot of people who have pregnancy loss have this mutation, because anything that's common, a lot of people who have a common condition or even a rare condition will have that common mutation. It's sort of like saying, you know, if you have pregnancy loss, a lot of people who have pregnancy loss are right-handed. Right. That's true, <laughs> but it's not the right-handedness that's causing the pregnancy loss. So for the MTHFR mutation, so that mutation is a mutation in the gene that's part of a, a very important biological process that takes folic acid that can come from our diet and makes it into a usable form in our body. And so that pathway is absolutely essential. And there is some evidence, good evidence, that mutations along those pathways can cause a number of poor health outcomes, such as heart disease. The link with miscarriage, though, is much, much more controversial. And most recently, the guidelines from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, the European, the equivalent in Europe, ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, has been not to screen or test for it. What is helpful is to make sure patients don't have elevated levels of chemical called homocysteine, Mm -hmm. which can be elevated and which may have directly poor outcomes. But in the absence of, you know, with the MTHFR, you have a backup in the pathway and you can get elevated levels of homocysteine. In the absence of that, it doesn't seem like the mutation per se is causing the pregnancy losses. The issue becomes what to do in cases where people have that, you know, certainly saying something like, you know, take increased amounts of folic acid or different forms of folic acid may be beneficial. What is sometimes done as well is patients are given aspirin, baby aspirin, and an injectable blood thinner called Lovenox. That's tough because at that point, you're, you're, you know, folic acid, even if this isn't causing mutation, is good for people to be taking. Once you're on these injectable blood thinners, if it's not necessary, it could be really problematic. And the way I describe it is that, especially when it comes to reproduction, there's sort of normal and there's abnormal, but there's not a better than normal. It's true that you don't want blood to clot too much. That's not good. But you also don't want blood to clot too little. Right. And so if someone doesn't need one of these things and you give it, there's the concern that you can actually be causing harm. So harm in terms of, you know, what we call sort of bleeding in the pregnancy, a subchorionic hematoma, 
but even harm if someone's on a blood thinner and they get bumped or they fall and hit their head, they could have a more significant bleed. So we absolutely do give Lovenox, not infrequently, but only in those conditions where it's very clear that that would have a benefit to the patient and that it's necessary. We wouldn't give it just sort of empirically. And so for something like MTHFR mutation, that's not a situation where we'd give an injectable blood thinner like Lovenox. So what is, what is the, the like defining characteristic of how you decide to do that? So we do a, a, a pretty careful screen for other clotting disorders that are associated with pregnancy loss. So one of the best studied examples of that is a syndrome called antiphospholipid syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that you've had well-designed controlled studies where they take women who have this condition and they randomize them to get aspirin plus Lovenox or no medication. And you see a very significant difference in their live birth rates afterwards. So in that condition, there's, there's a test which with a clear outcome and where treatment has been shown to make a difference. So that's something we routinely would screen for and treat. So, so if somebody tested positive for the MTHFR, then the next step would be to go look for the, the more advanced clotting issues or clotting disorders. Right. So we wouldn't, so normally we wouldn't test for MTHFR even directly because that by itself isn't helpful. We would often look for homocysteine levels to see if they're elevated, but that's incredibly rare, especially in people who are getting adequate folic acid in their diet. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. I did want to ask you about your oral IVF, the the coral procedure available at Columbia that only requires one shot as opposed to 30. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And that actually started as with many things with a a single patient who had, she had been seen at another fertility center, had gone through four rounds of IVF with maximum dose of medication and would only be getting one, sometimes no embryos as a result of all that and was never able to get pregnant and was told her only hope was to do donor egg. So to get an egg from another woman because of her faith, that wasn't even an option for her. So she was sort of resigned to not having children. Um, but what we noticed was that, you know, for many of these cases, when you're injecting medication, the medication that you're injecting is something called follicle stimulating hormone, which is a hormone that's made by the brain normally. And follicle stimulating hormone typically goes from the brain to the ovary and stimulates and tells the ovary to start making eggs to grow. Normally the levels are regulated so that every month just one egg ovulates. But in IVF, patients inject themselves with this follicle stimulating hormone to make more eggs. What is injected though is slightly different from what the body produces on its own. And so the question was, if we could stimulate the body to make its own FSH instead of needing to inject it, whether we could get a better response. And so instead of giving sort of what literally turns out to be about 30, the woman in a normal IVF cycle would give herself about 30 injections of FSH. Instead of doing that, the patient just takes a combination of pills that cause her brain to make the medication, to make that hormone. But it's her body's own version of that hormone. And for example, in the case of this patient, she landed up having three healthy embryos that she produced one of which was transferred, and she now has a healthy one-year-old child from that, and she has two other embryos available for her in the future. We've sort of now expanded that to many more patients, and it does look like compared to giving the traditional injectable medications, which can cost literally $5,000, are painful to administer. It's, it's a daunting process for many women to give, or for anyone you can imagine, to give that many injections. You know, the cost is quite minimal with the pills. They avoid the injections, and will often have the same or sometimes even better response in those women who are poor responders to the injectable medications. 
I love that. You're, you're kind of really trying to address the root cause, which is the brain and the, the feedback loops of how it's not producing the chemical on its own rather than sending a sledgehammer of these injections to do it for her. Yeah, I think that's, you put it beautifully, Hillary. That's exactly right. We're trying to, you know, with a lot of the things that we're doing, it's much more a question of trying to work with the woman and her physiology as opposed to being, in cases where it's not necessary, trying to medicate and push things when there's a way to do it without doing that. That's amazing. As I know, a lot of people are scared of needles or their husband travels and they don't want to give themselves these injections. And in cost alone, this could be really a game changer for driving down the cost of IVF across the board. Yeah, I hope so. I, I hope it makes it much easier financially and also emotionally and psychologically to go through treatment is, is never easy. I mean, it's a tough process for anyone. Um, and even people who are okay with giving themselves injections, it's a tough thing to go through. And, and you're right, there's very many people for whom that's a very difficult part of the process. So whatever we could do to make it easier for the woman and hopefully more successful as well, is certainly what we're always looking to do. We're always trying to sort of innovate and see how we can make the process better. So I once wrote a study that said poor responders sometimes fell pregnant the cycle after IVF on their own, and it was thought that they weren't clearing the medication properly. Is this kind of on that, like that this is less medication that they're taking, or is this something completely different? It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's less. It's the body's own version of the medication. The drug, if you look at the molecule itself, the body produces its own very differently. And, and you see that all the time. Like for, for many people, when they'll take a hormone version of a, a synthetic version or a pharmacologic version of a hormone, even look at birth control pills. I mean, those are just estrogen and progesterone. But the versions are different than what the body naturally produces. So even though the woman's body may be producing higher levels of estrogen on its own and higher levels of progesterone, when they take it in a pill form, sometimes women will feel, you know, have all these side effects like headaches or nausea, which they don't get when their bodies are making the hormones at physiologic levels, which are sometimes even higher. So the idea that what the drug is, is identical to what the body produces is not accurate. And sometimes those Differences which may seem subtle can be pretty dramatic to the individual. So you're also involved in a research study that aimed to show how stem cells could be easily harvested during the 140,000 IVF procedures that happen annually in our country, and that those could potentially be used to correct premature ovarian failure. So can you speak to about where we currently stand as a society in regards to being able to do this? So I, I think it's, it's important, and I'm glad you sort of phrased the question the way you did. It's important to sort of say what sort of technologies and science is close to being able to offer success and help, and which are potentially promising but very far away from being actually being able to use therapeutically. Stem cells for premature ovarian failure, there is the hope that in those who have premature ovarian failure, which means sort of using up eggs at a much earlier time than would be normal. So a woman is born with all the eggs that she'll have, and they get used up over time until typically around age 51, all the eggs are depleted and the woman enters menopause. There are cases often due to things like fragile X, premutations, or other chromosomal abnormalities like Turner syndrome, which is when one of the X chromosomes is missing, that this can happen at much earlier ages, even to women in their 20s. So there's always been the hope of trying to develop stem cells that could be turned into an egg to help replenish these egg sources. I think that would be a, a game changer and would be very exciting. 
but that's not anything that I think is sort of in the sort of near term horizon, unfortunately. But you're still doing the work, which is, I mean, you're, you're paving the way. And I, I think it's pretty awesome that you're taking people that are having tragedy and, you know, not in, not in just this study, but in the one of the previous ones where you were able to look at mutations in the sequencing that hadn't been identified yet. And you're potentially helping other women to be able to screen for this in the future or to, if you had to use IVF, then maybe down the road stem cells could be used. And that's such a, a huge gift for patients to think that they're actually helping somebody else in the future too. Yeah. And that's one thing we've noticed. Patients tend to be incredibly uh, compassionate and generous and trying in terms of not only trying to help themselves have success, but to help others going through similar situations. And, you know, I think those patients who help in research studies really need to be commended and, and thanked because, you know, even when I mentioned studies that where the, the results may not be in the near future, you know, looking at something in a 10-year horizon, you need to do those to be able to get there in 10 years. Otherwise, it'll just keep being in the future. And so for patients to help in these studies really is is tremendous and really helps advance and helps so many others. That's great. And you, before we started recording, we were talking before the show and you were telling me about the HOPE trial that you guys were doing around endometriosis and I had no idea. And that that's pretty fascinating if you're thinking outside of the box. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So endometriosis is a condition where the cells that normally are found inside the uterus, what comes out when a woman has her period, when those same cells are found in locations outside of the uterus, such as in the pelvis, on the ovaries, on the bowel. And that typically presents with pelvic pain. It can also present with infertility, but the classic presenting symptom is pelvic pain. It's sometimes quite debilitating. And that condition can be managed with medications like birth control pills to try and suppress it. But often the endometriosis will continue to grow. There's other medications they use to try and keep it at bay. The sort of temporizing surgeries where you'll go in and tra- take out the, those spots of endometriosis. But in some cases, the pain becomes so severe and refractory to these medical management or these temporary surgical approaches that sort of the final step in terms of treatment has been to remove the uterus, the tubes, and the ovaries. And uh, of course, that unfortunately renders the woman infertile. And so it's a, a pretty dramatic step to get to. Because part of the theory behind the disease is that you have two factors, the ovaries, which are producing the estrogen, which is thought to fuel the growth of endometriosis, that's why the ovaries are removed. The uterus has been removed because traditionally one of the ways that endometriosis was thought to happen is that you have what's called retrograde menstruation. So instead of the menses just coming out vaginally, some of it will go through the fallopian tubes and into the pelvis. And it was thought that that might be seeding in some women This happens commonly, but it was thought that in some women, that might sort of see the endometriosis and the pain. What we've recently started doing in collaboration with the the gynecologic specialty service at Columbia University is to sort of decouple those two things. So for a woman who's sort of at the point where what she's being recommended is to have a hysterectomy, her fallopian tubes and ovaries removed, to say, okay, well, what we can do is have that woman go through IVF. And either freeze her eggs if she doesn't have a partner or make embryos and freeze those, then remove the the ovaries and the fallopian tubes. So there's no longer going to be any estrogen production to fuel the endometriosis. And there's not going to be retrograde menstruation to sort of reseed the pelvis. But the uterus is left in place so that in the future, if the woman wants to have children, 
she has those frozen eggs or embryos available for her to use. That's awesome. Yeah, that's been exciting. I see why you guys named it Hope. Right. Uh, one of the other things we were speaking about was um, PCOS and the work that you're doing. And, and I was mentioning that I do see a lot of kind of the thinner phenotype of PCOS patients where, you know, I'm kind of wondering like, oh, if you did IVF, you would probably have, you know, 20 eggs harvested, but maybe only two or three of them would be viable because of the insulin. And and you were saying you guys have one of the world experts in PCOS and that you actually like treating this phenotype of women yeah, so we have um, one of the faculty in the fertility division at Columbia University is Roger Lobo, who's really the one of the giants in PCOS and literally has written a textbook on it. And PCOS is a very tough condition, which is a common condition and also one that commonly is associated with infertility, where you all have signs of androgen excess, so increased levels of male hormones. Um, and that can present with things like severe acne or hirsutism, which is sort of hair on the face or body in a male pattern, as well as irregular menstrual cycles. And it looks like one of the culprits behind this, sort of what sort of fuels the PCOS syndrome, may be insulin. And these women will often have insulin resistance, and that causes a lot of the hair growth, the acne, and the, the irregular cycles. It's been known for a long time that women with PCOS do have high rates of miscarriage and pregnancy loss, and people have often been sort of looking at glucose as being the cause, but the real mechanism by which it causes this isn't known. So we have research that we just presented at the Society of Reproductive Investigations last month where we showed that insulin itself is directly toxic to the early placenta. And insulin, not at these crazy high levels, but the same levels that women with insulin resistance have can be toxic. So because of that, we've landed up changing how we screen these patients. Traditionally, they've only been screened by measuring glucose, either looking at something like a hemoglobin A1C, sort of like a long-term barometer for the levels of sugar, or by doing a glucose tolerance test, but just measuring glucose. Instead, we actually look at the insulin levels in response to glucose. And what we're finding is there's a lot of women, and as you mentioned, often thin women who don't fit the classic sort of textbook picture of insulin resistance, a lot of these women will have normal sugar levels and will have a normal hemoglobin that you would see, but will have very, very high insulin levels, which means that when they take in carbohydrates or sugars, their bodies are able to maintain a normal sugar level in their blood, but they have to make a lot of insulin to do that. And these levels of insulin are directly toxic to the placenta cells of very early pregnancy. And so when we screen and identify these women, what we'll do as an intervention will be first and foremost to have them go on a low-sugar, low-carbohydrate diet. And in addition, we showed that if you give a medication metformin, it essentially reverses all these effects. It prevents insulin from having these toxic effects on the placenta. So we couple the diet change with this, the medication um, to try and keep the insulin levels at bay and try and prevent the harm to the pregnancy. That's awesome. That really proves you know that how important diet is too, and and managing your diet well before you get pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah, no, diet's critical, and it's one of those few areas that's actually very modifiable. It's not easy to modify always, but it it is modifiable. But we do have control over it. Yes, you're absolutely right. Especially in a time when you feel out of control, right? Mm-hmm. I think, Hillary, that's a, an important point. It is controllable, and it's it's something that can be done to really help improve, first of all, I think, overall health, but certainly pregnancy success. So I'm, I'm curious about, because 
you do reoccur in pregnancy loss. So you probably see quite a few of patients of advanced maternal age. What is your thoughts on fertility preservation for somebody that is, you know, maybe in their thirties and just kind of thinking, well, I don't have a partner yet. And if, if my risk of aneuploidy is going to increase with age, like, is that something that you encourage women to go out and freeze their eggs? Like, where do you sit with that? So I think there's a big knowledge gap here because you're right that there is a process called egg freezing, which has become incredibly successful in terms of having an ability to freeze eggs and have them survive the freezing process and the thawing process. The challenge with it is the the eggs are of best quality when the woman is younger, which is probably the time when she's less least concerned about her future fertility. So, so you have this problem that a woman will be sort of you know, 40 years old and ready to try and conceive and then learn that, oh, your eggs are probably of poor quality. But at this point, it's, it's unfortunately, it's going to be very challenging to get a sufficient number of eggs. Whereas when a woman is much younger, she can have those, the eggs will have a much higher chance of being usable, but she's not going to be as mindful of freezing the eggs at that point. So I think this is an area where awareness is really important and letting women who are earlier in their lives and may not be having plans for children in the, you know, let's say five year window going forward to say, you know what, this might be a good time for you to freeze your eggs so that when you're ready to try and conceive, your success rate will be essentially the same as what it was at the time that you froze your egg. So if you're listening and you're a little bit younger and obviously if you're listening and you don't have a partner, then you're concerned about this. This might be something you want to look into. Are you currently taking patients, new patients at Columbia or are you only doing like super hard cases of recurrent pregnancy loss? Well, we're, we're, we're a whole team. So I specialize in recurrent pregnancy loss, but the, the whole team that we work with, we have people who specialize in, in, as you brought up, issues like egg freezing and fertility preservation, people who specialize in PCOS and third-party reproduction. So, you know, and we are certainly taking patients. Okay. And do you t- do, you do a lot of um, traveling couples? Do you see people from out of state that come to you? Yeah, so for a lot of those couples, we'll do initial, cons- you know, we see patients from out of state, from out of country, and we'll do often Skype consultations um, initially because I think, you know, that face-to-face interaction, especially with topics as emotionally intense as this, is helpful. And it's helpful to make sure something as complex as the issues that we deal with, it's very helpful to sort of be able to see the patient. So we'll often do initial consultations and speak to the patients via Skype when they're located very remotely and when there is treatment needed, then they would come in for that or we can work with their local providers. Do you feel that there's a lot of um, a sense of willingness to do that with a lot of local providers and consult with you or? I do. I, I think there's, there's um, I think one of the gratifying things is for many of us in this field, you know, we're here to try and help and there's nobody who has all the answers. And so having colleagues elsewhere who can give feedback and input can be, you know, is great because it helps you get closer to your ultimate goal of helping that couple have success. That's awesome. Again, I love it. It's going back to your intention to help grow these healthy, happy families. No, and it's been nice. And that's why we try to really have all those specialists. I mean, if people want, you know, we have a website, columbiafertility.org, where you sort of can see the different people we have in the areas where they're, they're focused on. Okay. And is that the easiest way to book a consult with you is through that website? I think so. I, I mean, we have a phone number I can give if you'd like, but the website's sometimes easier. I will. I'll make sure that that is in the show notes of ladypotions.com backslash episode 27. Um, and I have one final question for you. If you could give one piece of advice to couples looking to conceive, what would it be? 
That's a really great, great question. You know what I would say? Once they're trying to conceive, they're already going to probably be looking for help and they're going to be going down the medical route. What I would say is make sure to support each other and to be there for each other. It's a tough journey and you know, you want to be going through it together and having each other to support. And those who don't have a partner, to have other family or friends to help you through it. It's a very difficult thing to go through and having people to help you through the process from the earliest possible stage, I think is really helpful. I love that. That is so important, right? I mean, we want to keep those relationships healthy as we go through that stressful time. Well, thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy day to share your work with our listeners and for your bigger mission to help such a deserving patient population to heal. Truly, I do hope our paths cross again. And if you're listening, I hope you've got a lot out of this. And if you have questions, that you'll contact Dr. Williams directly for a consult. Hillary, thank you. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Bye for now. Hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, I invite you to become part of the Fertile Minds Collective. It's our monthly coaching program where we take all of this material and we fine-tune it to your unique fertility journey. You'll enjoy one-on-one session with me, a community of like-minded women, the ability to ask questions and get answers on your timelines, and all the mind-level tools you need to feel your best on your way to becoming a parent. Join me by visiting ladypotions.com and clicking on the banner at the top of the page.